But we are in the book of Isaiah tonight, and we're going uh, through the Bible. We started in Genesis, and we are now in Isaiah. So before we begin, let's pray. Does anyone need a Bible? If you do, raise your hand. A couple here. Let's pray before we begin. We just thank you so much, Lord, that we can gather to, together and just really seek you and see your heart, hear your heart, feel your heart, Lord. And that's what your word itself says we can do when we open it. Lord Jesus, you, you say you are the word. to get to know you better through your word, through you this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Isaiah. So we have finished the historical books, which is Genesis through Esther. The poetical books and the wisdom, poetical and wisdom, that's Job through the Song of Solomon. So now we begin the prophetical books, Isaiah through what? Malachi, that's right. Just finished Malachi this morning in my own study. And there are, again, 17 books of the prophets. Five are called major, not because they're more important, because they're longer. Twelve are called minor, and Isaiah is the longest haven't counted the words myself. Jeremiah is also very long, but uh, it is the longest. And, you know, he is just a man just uniquely called by God both to speak prophetically to his own generation, and we'll see him do that. Actually, we've already seen Isaiah do that because he does it in in the historical books uh, in... Uh, when is, it, is that Second Kings when he talks to Hezekiah? I believe so. And also in Chronicles. So he, we've already seen him. It's one of the interesting things that Isaiah is someone who we also read about already in the Bible. But unlike many other prophets, he speaks to future generations. So Elijah did not speak to future generations. He got in Ahab's face, to be sure, but he didn't speak to future generations. Elisha also got in the face of a few kings, but he did not speak to future generations. Prophecy is a gift, a spiritual gift. It's mentioned in the New Testament as a gift that really we should all seek after, And when the term is used, it really is not speaking. uh, When we hear a prophecy, we think of the future. But being a prophet means being an oracle of God. It means just it's the foretelling of the truth according to the spirit of God. So a lot of times in the book of Isaiah, God is actually speaking (laughs) and when a pastor or a teacher has a prophetical gift, which uh, many pastors do, he or um, he is just speaking through uh, the 
God is just speaking through uh, the pastor directly into specific situations in the life of a person or the life of a church. And so, again, that's why after a sermon, someone will come up to me and said, you know, what, have you have hidden cameras in my house or something? How did you know I was going through that? You know, and you mentioned it specifically in the sermon that is... Uh, we don't do that around here. We don't put hidden cameras in people's houses. But we do seek out the Lord every single week. Lord, what do you want me to say today to this group of men and women? And so prophetical gifts. And Isaiah, the time that he lived in was uh, truly, truly a perilous time. Northern Israel at the time he was ministering, was being wiped out, and there was great calamity there. Uh, Actually, it ceases to exist. The Assyrians come in and just wipe it out. In the south, in Judah, Jerusalem, uh, also uh, was under great calamity. At one point, the Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrians who just wanted to slaughter it. And Uh, That's where you have that amazing situation with Hezekiah. Isaiah prophesies, said, don't worry, God's going to take care of you. And 184,000, or give or take a thousand, I don't remember exactly, were killed by the angel of the Lord outside of Jerusalem. And uh, that was all part of Isaiah's ministry, but time of just unbelievable calamity. The first 39 chapters speak a lot about judgment, warning and judgment. And then the rest of the book, there's also warnings as well, but a lot about comfort and trusting in the Lord during a period of enormous turmoil. Isaiah is a real uh, unique place in my, my own heart just because about a year and a half after the church started, I went down with really severe neck pain and had to get off uh, some medication and uh, that I'd been on for, for quite a while. Uh, and I was in tremendous pain. Pastor Scott uh, took over the pulpit for about six weeks, or for six weeks I was out of the pulpit. And I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't think I would really be able to be a functioning father or husband, much less a pastor. And I just remember one morning waking up and the Lord just brought me to Isaiah chapter 40. And I just began to read it and uh, just weeping for like three hours as I read from Isaiah 40. Um, all the way to the end of, is it 66 chapters in Isaiah? 66 chapters. And so much comfort, so many promises. So, uh, the, you know, I, Isaiah 40 verse 1 starts, comfort, yes, comfort my people. That's how he handles Messiah. Handles Messiah begins. Comfort ye my people. Be ye comforted. God loves you. He understands what you're going through. He is there for you. You need to trust in him. Amazing, amazing book. Consider this uh, about 
the sheer shocking grandeur, if I could say such a thing, about the prophecy of Isaiah. It prophesies God's very decision to send Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In Isaiah 59, verse 15, it says, He saw there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor, intercessor, therefore his own arm brought salvation for him. Uh, Speaking about that, you know, the Lord looked throughout the whole world, knew there was not someone who was going to save, so sent his own son. It tells us about, Isaiah tells us about the birth of Christ. Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It talks about how there was going to be a forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist, Isaiah 40, a, a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Isaiah talks about the very ministry of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 29, 35, and 61. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The de- ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongues of the dumb uh, will sing. It talks about how the Messiah would be anointed, Isaiah 61. The Spirit of God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the meek. It talks about his rejection and uh, that he was despised by men. He was bruised for our transgressions, Isaiah 52 and 53. He was despised and rejected. Talks about his death, Isaiah 53. Says he was cut off from the land of the living. It talks about this fancy theological thing called substitutionary atonement, which is the very simply, which means Jesus died for our sins. Isaiah 53, for the transgression of my people He was stricken. It talks about the resurrection of Jesus. Isaiah 53, though you made his soul, his Jesus Christ, soul an offering for sin, it says, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days. It talks about the return of Jesus Christ. It talks about the salvation of the Gentiles, about us being able to participate in salvation. In Isaiah 65, it says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. It talks about the glory of heaven. It prophesies about the glory of heaven, chapter 60. The sun shall no longer be the light of day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light. It talks about the millennial reign. Isaiah 65, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and the lion shall eat straw with a bullock and dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So a little baby will hang out with a cobra. Wow. Now, any time you have prophecy like that that's fulfilled, which is so amazing and so specific and so rich, 
you're going to have Satan doing all he can to, t- to try to just rip up the book to shreds. And so as it's, it's so predictable, it's almost nauseating, <laughs> but liberal uh, scholars and secular scholars try to just tear apart this book and say that there were multiple authors and it all happened after the fact. Although no, no one really argues that it was done before Jesus was, uh, that was done after Jesus was born. But they will try to say the things that in there about Jesus' birth really were talking about something else. And they do the same thing with the book of Daniel, which actually has the most specific, in my opinion, the most specific prophecies about Jesus uh, in even actually quite more specific even than Isaiah. Uh, It it actually prophesies to the day Jesus is going to come in Jerusalem. But they do the same thing with Daniel. But here, I don't, and I don't want to spend time on all that nonsense. Just you can go out and do your own reading if you like. There's plenty of wonderful scholarship that really, really lays to rest, um, you know, those kind of criticisms. But you should know as Christians, as, uh, as those who, the Bible does say, we need to have a defense for the faith that we have, that, you know, people are going to be coming up with these theories. It clearly, the main motivating factor is, for the criticism of the book, is people don't want to admit there's such a thing as God who they're accountable to. So they have a big, big problem with this book because if this book's right, they're in trouble. <laughs> And so, um, um, Isaiah, uh, there was, there's a funny story some of you may have heard before. Yep. No, is that what I said? That Isaiah was written after Jesus was born? Well, no, that's certainly not what I meant. Um, Isaiah was written about 750 years before Jesus was born. What I meant to say was, those criticizing um, the book try to put it at a much later date, although no one says that it was written after. That's what I meant to say. And the reason for that is because the year before Israel became a state, it became a a, a nation again in 1948. 1947, uh, Bedouin Shepherd found a copy of the book of Isaiah that there's no dispute it was written prior to the time that Jesus was was born. In other words, no one argues that this, they're called the Dead Sea Scrolls, that they were found in a cave in the area of the uh, Kuman, uh, I believe it's called, and they, um, the, you know, the, all, scholars agree that... Uh, that um, the date of the document is prior to the birth of Christ. But anyway, there's a funny story about the whole issue of who wrote it. Uh, Chuck Smith, uh, Greg Laurie, and there was some professor of religion, I think Berkeley or something like that, was on a radio show. And and uh, they were speaking to the Berkeley professor, and he's like, oh, no, you know, there were multiple authors of... Uh, of Isaiah, and uh, Chuck Smith said, but, you know, Jesus quoted Isaiah, and he said to this 
this religious scholar from Berkeley, uh, do you think that, are you trying to tell me that the information you have today that um, you have more information than Jesus had? And the guy said, well, yes, we have more research now. We've uncovered more manuscripts. And he says, no, wait, I, I'm, I refuse to talk any longer with someone who thinks they have more information about than Jesus. And he click, he ain't hung up the phone and left Greg Laurie alone with the radio talk shows. Um, but uh, Jesus quotes Isaiah actually multiple times. And uh, so it was clear what Jesus thought. And uh, I believe Jesus quoted, you know, among other things, he, he quotes, I think he quotes the latter part of the book, the, 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 the beginning of the book. But uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And we know that Isaiah, in chapter 8, verse 3, it says that he had a wife, and she was a prophetess. He had two sons, one son, Shear Jashub, which means the remnant will return. He had another son called Maher Shalalala Bats. That's three laws. No, that's aha and two laws. Shalalala Bats, which means quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Where's Erica? Erica? Maybe a name for your baby. Shalalala Bats. In verse 1, it said the vision, it says the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw. So you have to ask yourself, did he see a vision of Jesus dying on the cross? Have you ever asked the Lord, Lord, can you just, can you just like give me a vision of the cross? I've done that. Did Isaiah, 750 years before Jesus was crucified, did he see Jesus on the cross? Because Isaiah chronicles it in detail. Did he actually see that? I don't know. It says the vision that he saw. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Tradition has it that he was killed by Manasseh, who was Hezekiah's son. So he reigned... If you add up, and it's unclear when in the reign of Uzziah, because Uzziah reigned for 50 years, 52 years, I think. It's unclear when he started there, but if, if you put him at the end of the reign of Uzziah, then Jotham, then Ahaz, and Hezekiah, and then the beginning of Manasseh, he, his ministry was 50 years. 50 years. The ministry of this man. It says in verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken, I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled 
against me. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, meaning God's about to speak. And so you better listen up. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's crib. But Israel does not know, my people do not consider. Meaning, it had gotten to the point where the nation, their behavior was beneath even the behavior of an animal. It was so bad. You know, I look out today and many of what, much of what you see, the behavior is worse in many quarters of the United States and our own city than the behavior of animals. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. They, they don't know who their master is, their owner is, their father is. Alas, sinful nation. So he's speaking out prophetically to the nation of Israel. A people laden, meaning filled, with iniquity. A brood of evildoers. Children who are corruptors, meaning not only are they corrupt, they corrupt others. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked uh, to anger the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away Backward. That word, the whole, that phrase, the Holy One of Israel, mentioned, I guess people differ when they uh, add it up because I guess the translations differ from time to time. But between 25 and 28 times in the book of Isaiah, the Holy One of Israel, he refers to the Lord as the Holy One of Israel. Verse 5. Why? Should you be stricken again? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the, the whole heart faints. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed or bound up or soothed with ointment. So, the idea is this. These guys have been going downhill and downhill and downhill. God has been punishing them, afflicting them, afflicting them. Why? Not because, uh, you know, out of anger, because, uh, you know, some irrational kind of father beating his kids. No, he wants them to come back. But he says at the beginning of verse 5, why should you be stricken again? Meaning, look, what's already happened to you. In, in verse 6, he describes from the soul of the a foot to their head. There's just wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. He has not convinced them to come back in spite of all the judgment. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks that does, does not a father chasten his son? If you've never been chastened, you are illegitimate. It says in Hebrews chapter 12. And what he's referring to now, it, it's almost, think of the picture of a leper. The, 
the sores are putrefying. They smell terribly, verse 6. In other words, the body, the, the nation is filled with open wounds, all of which the Lord himself afflicted on Israel because he wanted them to come back. And he's saying at the beginning of verse 6, what, you want to be stricken again? Why would you want to be stricken again when all this has happened to you? Truly amazing when a nation or a group of people has reached a place in their national life where they're so hardened in their sin that they're beyond chastening. They're beyond afflicting anymore. They're just apostasized. That's what's happened to the northern ten tribes. It, it just it, it was beyond the point where anyone would listen anymore. That is a scary place when someone has come to that place in their life. From the head to the foot, it says, all you are is sores. What, I don't, there's nowhere else to even afflict you anymore. Verse 7 Your country is desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Strangers devour your land in in your presence, and it is desolate and overthrown by strangers. All of this, you know, God used the Assyrians to come in and afflict Israel for the specific purpose that Israel would turn back to him. You know, many times when I pray with someone for a loved one who they want to come to the Lord. The prayer is this. The prayer is, Lord, just remove anything from them. Any pillar of support that's propping up their life of sin, just remove it, anything. Sometimes the Lord has to remove someone's health completely for them to come to the Lord. And, and or, or, or just other things. He, he, he loves us that much. He wants a relationship. And, you know, I'd rather be paralyzed, a quadriplegic going to heaven, than having full use of my limbs and going to hell for eternity. And God takes hell so seriously, you know. And we'll see here, he pleads with the people. Hell is real, and God, as we're seeing already here, is the one by far most concerned about it. And wouldn't you afflict someone over and over and over again if the affliction may prevent them from spending eternity in hell? Well, you know, this is this is what he is... This is what he's been doing, and they have not been responding. Verse 6, so the daughter of Zion, which is another name for Israel, is left as a booth in a vineyard, as a hut in a garden of cucumbers, as a besieged city. Unless, the verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. And we would have been made like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were completely destroyed to a man and a woman. Every single person destroyed. And he's saying, unless I had a remnant, meaning a group of people, 
there who were still following me in Israel, you would be the same way. You know, I say this and I say it with, you know, knowing full well that if the media ever heard me say this, they would actually take it and run with it and go hog wild with it. But the only hope for the United States is the church. That's it. It's us. (laughs) We are the only hope. Can you imagine what CNN or someone would do with that quote? We are the only hope. If it's not for the church, the United States would be like Sodom. It would be like Gomorrah. A lot of people think that the thing that is going to... The reason that you do not see the United States mentioned in the book of Revelation, and it really, it's not there, and there's some people who try to, you know, look into it. It's just because the rapture happens the Christian church, the remnant is taken out in the United States is so utterly weakened that it's, it's a non-entity from that point on. And it's, it's, why should it be mentioned in the end times theology or, 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 or prophecy when it's just a non-entity at that point because it'll just, it'll just collapse completely. There are a lot of Christians. Wherever I go in the United States, I meet people who absolutely are in love with the Lord. That is the only hope for this country. He says again in verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. I mean, you you, you all probably remember the story. Before God destroyed Sodom, Abraham said, now wait a second, you know, Lord, what if there's 50 people there? Will you destroy Sodom? No. How about 45? No. How about 40? No. And then by that time, okay, we get the point, but he doesn't stop. How about 35? You know, and it keeps on going down. <laughs> and I think, it's, does he get to five? Did he gets to 10? Pastor Scott, just fresh from a teaching in Genesis. I don't know. That may have been a couple months ago. What, what chapter was that? Chapter what? Sodom? He doesn't know that much, but. Um, that's asking a lot. That's asking a lot, putting him on the spot there. But, um, you know, and, and he said, well, how about 10? And, and, and the Lord said, no, I'm not going to destroy it. There's 10 righteous people. That's why one reason we believe in the rapture before the tribulation, because God says that even 10, he's unwilling to destroy a city. And even actually, as the story turned out, even if there's one person, God was not going to destroy Sodom because the only righteous guy there was Lot. His wife sure wasn't righteous, neither were his daughters or son-in-law. So um, that's why, one of the many reasons why I believe that the Bible teaches a rapture prior to the tribulation, but I may be completely wrong about that. But that's one of the reasons Uh, that we believe that. Verse 10, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. What's a strong statement? Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of your burnt offerings of rams 
and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls. He's speaking there of the sacrifices they were making every Sabbath. Or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hands to trample on my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. So referring to the incense required by the law of Moses, he's saying, look, I'm sick of it. Just stop it. The new moons, the Sabbaths, this calling of the assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble uh, to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are filled with blood. Now, I don't know about you, but when I see him say here, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, that's a little scary because I just think of the United States of America and there is, you know, it's been said, Jesus said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? Now, what is he going to find? Well, to be sure, one thing he'll find is a lot of religion in our country. He will find a, lo- a lot of religion. The question that he asked, though, will he find faith? And there is a whole lot of raising of hands around this country. And it's no more than emotionalism because the people go right out of the church door and live what ever kind of life that they, their flesh wants to live. There is absolutely no uh, uh, change behavior or behavior that is aligned with the word of God, but they love getting together and raising their hands and singing hosannas and, and, and being pumped up with gospel and worship music. You know, it's scary reading this. And the Lord's saying, who told you to do all this? Stop it. I'm tired of your assemblies, he says. The calling of assemblies, verse 13. Let's have a worship time. Let's have a worship night. And, you know, gathering together and worshiping and jamming out and going, just leaving and just going out to nightclubs and having sex outside of marriage and lying, cheating, stealing. The same kind of prophetic voice speaks to us today. He spoke to his generation. He speaks to ours. Notice verse 15 when he says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. We talked on, uh, I give a little teaching each Wednesday morning on prayer, at our morning prayer. And I spent this week on John chapter 15, where Jesus says, if you abide me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you want. And it will be given to you. There's an if there. 
don't be surprised if the Lord's not answering any prayers, if you are not walking in obedience with him. This is not rocket science. It's mentioned throughout, this type of thing is mentioned throughout the Bible. We can't expect anything in terms of answered prayer if we're not abiding with Christ. If we're abiding with Christ, and then Jesus says in John 15, and my Father's words abide in you, you're going to know what to pray, and therefore ask whatever you receive. Why? Because you're going, to re- you're going to be asking in accordance with the Father's words in you, and it will be given to you. But here's the deal. God doesn't, want us or the nation of Israel to stay in this state of affairs. He says in verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow... What are you doing? What are we doing? Which really looks like the radical Jesus style Christian life. You know, are we, and I, and I speak this to my own heart, are we bringing in the widow, the orphan, into our house? Are we really, uh, you know, radically giving, you know, money to the things of the Lord that the Lord, anyone in the world would look at us and go, that is crazy. Are we really living not on the front line, beyond the front line with Jesus? You know, I, I do... I do love that quote of Mother Teresa where exactly, uh, you know, where exactly she was theologically, it's, it's unclear. I, I do believe she's with the Lord. But she, she, she said that you know, when she washes the wounds of the leper, she was washing Jesus' wounds. That's just a fact. It's not, she didn't make that up. <laughs> she just got that from the Word of God. She got that from these verses. Are we just living the comfortable Christian life in our comfort zone? We're out there really living in such a way that, you know, we're, living, we're doing exactly what Jesus would be doing, exactly what he would be doing. If he was here with us, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He'll get a lot of religion. People showing up to church every week. He'll see that if he was here. But is he going to find faith? And that's talking so much more about faith in who he is. It's talking about doing. Pure and faultless religion is this. Taking care of widows and orphans and keeping yourself polluted from the world. Will he find faith on earth? I don't know about you, man. I just want to be right beyond the front line with the Lord and seek him 
and ask him, what does that look like, Lord? And show me there. He said he'll never forsake us or leave us. He'll be with us. And now this amazing verse in verse 18, there's been a thousand sermons on this verse. I'm sorry, not a thousand, probably 300,000. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And so the picture here is the Lord, for incomprehensible reasons, being willing to even though he's God, he's existed for all eternity, he created the heavens and earth, come down to a bunch of foul worms and plead with us and say, can we at least talk about this? And you would think, he's God, he can say my way or the highway. You know how growing up, you know, your kid, uh, you you you. You ask your mom, well, why do we have to do this? Because I said so. That's not what's going on here. And a lot of times with my kids, it's like, you know, well, because I said so. Well, the Lord's doing so much more than that. He's actually explained, why does God do that? He doesn't have to explain himself. Only for one, only one possible explanation. He loves you. He loves us. He loved Israel. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. In other words, look, you've poured a lot of blood in many different ways. And yes, your sin covers you. And it's defiled you and you're just covered with the blood and the guilt and the shame and the wickedness of your sin. But I can make it white as snow. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. So at this time, they're starving. They have famines. Cities are desolate. And there's just a very, very, very simple principle in the Bible. I love the book of Deuteronomy. It's just a very simple principle in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Obey the Lord, <laughs> and you will prosper. Don't obey him, and you won't. And this says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Now, that wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense to them because the Assyrians had just come in and wiped out everything. Uh, what land? <laughs> There's no land left to, to eat from. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken.
this guy. <laughs> I like Elijah too. He just goes right up to Ahab, right up to him in his court. He says, for three years, no, no, except by my word, there will be no rain in this land. Then he just takes off. Um, and, and, you know, this is the, this is the same thing. I just love these Old Testament prophets. They're just so filled with courage. And of course, it's, it's the spirit of the Lord. It's the only possible way anyone can talk like this. You know, uh, did, did I mention how the tradition, how I, they say Isaiah died? He was, did I say that? I did, I say that. So Manasseh allegedly Sodom in half. In Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about prophets sawn asunder or sawn in half. And it's believed that, you know, Isaiah was sawn in half with a wooden saw. So how, that is right. A wooden saw, you know. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, it's such a, such, a, such a powerful beginning to a book, you know. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot, a prostitute. It was full of justice. It's speaking of Jerusalem now. He's speaking of Jerusalem now. Righteousness lodged in it, but now murders, but now murders. Your silver has become dross. Your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious. Your and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. So it says how the faithful city has become a harlot. It was great reading through the historical books, right? Where Jerusalem was this like man to have lived there during David's reign when he instituted 24-hour worship at the tabernacle. 24 hours, the Levites were singing around the clock. And people followed the Lord. And there was just this amazing prosperity in Israel because people were following the Lord. I think of Jehoshaphat, one of my favorite parts in our study. Um, that's First Kings, right? I think it's 1 Kings, Jehoshaphat, not 2 Kings, where he was sending out people all over Israel just to declare and teach the word of the Lord. And Jerusalem was just filled with people teaching the word of God. And that's what he's referring to here, how the faithful city, he's hearkening back when Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, just cried out to the Lord in prayer and prayed by faith, and, and there was a prayer language that in that city that was just awesome and so filled with faith. How the faithful city has become a harlot, was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now there's just murders. Therefore, verse 24, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross. Dross is the ugly part. You know how silver after a while, it gets this gucky green and uh, 
gray gunk on it. My grandmother who used to have a lot of silver, used to pay me and my brothers when you know, I was like 12 or 13 to take all the dross all, all off of her silver. And this is talking about I'm going to take it and I'm going to purge away all that dross and, and, and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So in Isaiah, there actually are a couple prophets that it's like practically no good news. I mean, the whole thing is just unmitigated judgment. Um, but Isaiah, you do see sort of hope throughout the whole thing. And so he says, okay, if I have to do it this way, I'm going to do it. But the end result is going to be righteousness. Verse 27, Zion shall be, Zion is Israel, shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of the transgressors and of sinners shall be together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired. So something was happening beneath these trees, probably ritual prostitution and that type of thing associated with the uh, pagan temples that this is referring to there. And it says, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees. In other words, I'm going to return this country to a time where there's actually sanctified shame for sin. You know, there is a shame that's sanctified, that's holy and good. Not all shame is wrong. There is a certain kind of shame that's from the Lord. And I'm going to return this country, this nation, to a time where people actually have shame for doing things. You know, the, in Spanish, you have that expression, sin vergüenza, without shame. You know, people that's, that's just doing stuff, there's no shame there. And God says he's going to return it, the shame. And you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen, for you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water. The strong shall be as tender and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. So... He's going to bring them to the, uh, to the place where they, they recognize their sin, but there's going to be a whole lot of smoldering around them and judgment for the sin. And so that's the first chapter of the book of Isaiah, and we will uh, stop right there. Really powerful book, and so much to learn from it. Uh, such a blessing uh, to us that the Lord has given in this, th- this book. I encourage you to read ahead. Actually, I always encourage that, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday night. Uh, Just read ahead uh, with what uh, we're reading.